this week on the Digital Dust Podcast. As, as a person, who he is, is someone who never stops trying. He, he just keeps going for it, you know, and he, and he keeps pursuing it because that's what matters. Hello and welcome back to Digital Dust. I'm Katie. I'm Robin. And I'm Patrick. That's not nice. Whoa. Yes, this is me. And I'm going to be your expert for today. I believe it. This face is worse than the voice. Like, let's be honest here. It's like those classic documentaries from high school where you're just like, okay. (laughs) Not Mm -hmm, along, not mm -hmm. along. Yeah, I was was the best at those documentaries. Today, we're going to be talking about... One of my very favorite historical figures, possibly tied for my favorite, I'm not entirely sure, but he's a really wonderful person, he's really interesting, has a lot of layers to him, and is really representative of a lot of my favorite themes about history and a lot of my favorite parts of history, and I'm really excited to talk about him. So without further ado, this is our deep dive uh, episode into, into Bayard Rustin. Our boy. Our boy. We've talked, I think we've talked about this episode at least five times in different seasons or something well i think he came up first in like what episode 11 or i know i was trying to remember today no 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 No, earlier it was kestra's episode yeah and that wasn't that was like mid first that was like yeah seven or eight maybe yeah 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 yeah. because it was all about queer history and of course as we will find out rustin is is very connected to queer history so yeah so this is great i'm uh we're finally doing it Long time. Long time coming. I'm very yeah, excited about this. Seriously. So, okay, let's let's begin with a question that uh, we often begin with. And I'm just really curious to know uh, if you guys know anything about Rustin or if you have no idea who he is. He is uh, a certified hottie. He, oh, he is. Our... <laughs> he absolutely was. <laughs> I think we rated him. I totally remember rating him at some point. I mean, if we didn't, he is like. Yeah. Oh, did we just I'm rate not... him with Kestra? I think that's what happened. We might have just rated him in general. <laughs> anyway, I still stand by it. He's in mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, that you yeah. recommended one of his books. I did. This book right here. That I there have it is. Me. There it is. Yeah. The Lost Prophet. Yeah, Lost Prophet. The Life and Times of Bayard Rustin. By John D'Amelio. Yeah, okay. He is a certified hot. Yeah, no, he's great. So mm-hmm. I'll give him that. Uh, uh, that's Robin really said it all. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's his whole biography. (laughs) Something about, um, oh God, no, I'm not going to, an attempt at. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Before the episode with Kestra, Mm -hmm. I had not heard of him. Yeah. Same. Period. That's totally fair. And now that's all I know about him. That and being a certified hot. This is this is uh, actually excellent for what we're going to be talking about today because that is a very common theme about Rustin uh, as as a oh. as a figure, as a historical figure. He is incredibly unknown and underrepresented for reasons that we'll get into, but his contributions to the civil rights movement, to anti-war activism, to to the idea of nonviolent direct action and and nonviolent protest in North America in general, is like insane that like he, he is the the backbone of all these various things which we'll of course get into as as i talk about him so uh uh without further ado uh just to give you a little brief rundown about who he is in general 
So Rustin was a civil rights activist. He was a pacifist and anti-war activist, a significant figure in the fight for various social issues and specifically through nonviolent direct action. This came from sort of his general pacifism and his uh, upbringing, upbringing as a Quaker uh, sort of thing, which we'll get into more later as well. So I have a couple quotes from D'Amelio's book, which I think are really, really incredible. For example, he at the very beginning in his introduction, he says, Rustin was not a four-star general, not a celebrity. He did not die young under tragic circumstances, as did King and Malcolm X, two more renowned African-Americans whom we do remember. So this is the thing, is that he, he, he wasn't the face. He wasn't the person who was on the front lines of, of these various movements and things. He was often in the back, a major planner, a major advisor. In some ways, you might consider that he, he, he may have sort of been born a generation too early, if that makes sense. He was like about maybe... 10, 20-ish years older than, than the main civil rights leaders that we know. And so he was uh, often more in that advisory role. So yeah, so he, he wasn't remembered for, for two reasons. First one is Rustin was a visionary, but was often an advisor in the background, as I said. So rather than having no cause, Rustin often had too many causes. Uh, he was a part of literally any nonviolent movement in the mid-20th century and found the face of such movements rather than being the face himself. So he was often the person behind the scenes sort of pushing those movements forward. And the second reason why he's often not remembered, I mean, there are obviously others, but two of the main ones that I think are significant. The second reason that I, uh, that I want to bring up is that he was gay and often labeled as a sexual pervert, as well as a communist and a draft dodger. I'm not entirely sure what that last term means, but he was labeled as it, and it wasn't considered good. You don't know what... I don't know what a draft... No. I'm Wait, sorry. You don't know what a draft dodger is. Can you tell me what is? that is? This is not... Yeah, Katie is somebody... the other expert for this episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised you never heard the term draft dodger. Yeah. Um, it's somebody who avoided the draft to Vietnam. Oh, duh. Yes. Oh. Okay. Yes. Right in the name. It's related... Okay. Like to Canadian history because lots of draft dodgers Came like cross the border and we let them. Makes sense. Oh. Yeah. Right. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Great. Yeah. This this is actually really funny because he would be a draft dodger in the context of World War II, which is something I'm totally going to talk about a bunch mm. later on. And so it's hilarious. I didn't know the term itself, but uh, if if that's what the term means, he absolutely was a draft dodger for sure. But in any case, he wasn't like the term sexual pervert in this way was just often applied to gay men in the time period that he was living in and so it it it's it's more of a gay slur than it is any actual sort of legitimate term to to call him and so for these reasons among a, a, a few minor others he was often not considered to be sort of the face of any sort of movement overall rustin is known because of his unbreakable conviction to nonviolence. so this is is the main thing about him he believed that violence could never bring justice and that war could never bring peace that was like his firm, firm stance. And he believed it ideologically. Like this wasn't just a tactic for him. This was a way of life. And it was, it was who, like at the core of who he was as much as anything else about him. And so that's why I want to talk about him. Because for me, the wonderful thing about Rustin is that whether, whether you agree or disagree with the limits of nonviolent direct action, I certainly have some criticisms myself, uh, you, you cannot help but admire his absolute commitment to it. And that's the thing, the, the recurring thing that will come up as I keep telling you stories about this guy is that like, you're just going to be in awe of like, wow, he just, he just pulled that. He just, he just did that. Okay. Or like he, he, he didn't back down. That's fucking wild, you know? So He's a really fascinating figure for just just for this, the sole conviction that he had towards nonviolence and what he believed it was uh, able 
to accomplish, essentially. So uh, before we get into his life particularly, I wanted to just give a brief definition on what nonviolent direct action is. And I wanted to do this mainly because there's a lot of uh, misinformation about what sort of Martin Luther King's whole movement was about in civil rights. Often he's portrayed as a figure of non-action, as opposed to someone like Malcolm X, who's portrayed as a figure of action, where it's like, you know, King wanted peace, and so he didn't do anything. He wasn't violent towards white people. He just walked and protested and, and was very kind and sweet and, and whatever. But uh, in reality, nonviolent direct action had like rows and rows and rows of teeth. Like this was a form of activism that got shit done for sure, but like was, was, was not pacifistic in, in the sense of doing nothing. It was pacifistic in terms of what they did, which was technically nothing, but it, it was doing nothing for the sake of doing something. It's all turned around, uh, if, that, if that makes any sense. So the, the point of nonviolent direct action are a few, there, there are a few different main reasons why you'd want to do that form of protest. One of which is that, of course, black folks were often labeled as violent and aggressive and animalistic and, you know, we, uh, people, people who need to be sort of arrested or jailed so that we can protect the the civilized and peaceful and kind white people right that's that's the sort of racist narrative that would exist in the jim crow south and so nonviolent direct action was the way to show that it was absolutely the reverse that you know you would go and you would sit in the whites only section of a store or a restaurant or something like that and you just wouldn't move like that like nonviolent direct action the direct part is that you would go to the place and you just wouldn't do anything you would you would just stand there and and essentially like the only way you're getting out of there is if white people try to drag you out or hit you or or that sort of stuff and use violence against you so it was literally a way to to visualize and show that black people were not the violent ones they were the ones who who were simply sitting down and doing nothing and that agitated all these white people to show their true form of very violent and angry and aggressive people. And so that was a huge part of the power of nonviolent direct action. Uh, another part of it has to honestly do with like, like nonviolent direct action is such a significant form of protest because you are using your own body as a weapon and, and tool to be damaged. Like, it's not like you just sort of go for a walk and, and you know, it's less powerful than fighting physically. Like, these people literally laid on the ground and let police officers beat them with batons repeatedly to show how violent white people could be. And so their inaction in those moments was a, a, a form of strength to show why they needed equal rights and that sort of thing. And so nonviolent direct action, literally, you were using your body to protest and and you were putting your own health on the line in those ways and so you weren't a, a away from violence you were just being the non-violent one that's why it's non-violent direct action so hopefully does that make sense is that is that a, a good explanation of, of what non-violent direct action is yeah totally makes sense because and you can like by that definition you can see the the holes in the logic of how people often portray martin luther king right that he was this person who just sort of didn't care and just asked for racism to be over and the polite white people were like sure you know like that's not at all it he was he was fighting tooth and nail but he was just doing it strategically to to show that they still had their morals and they still have the, like the sort of high ground that white people seem to adore so much and seem to to place upon themselves uh, and show that it was actually black folks who embodied those values and that sort of thing 
So that's where nonviolent direct action is really defined as, particularly in the context of the civil rights movement. And now we get to move on to Rushton, and we get to talk about this really cool guy. So here we go. Okay. So the really cool thing about Rushton, I think, rather one of many very cool things about Rushton, is that his whole life is a part of the interesting aspects of his story. It was not just that he one day, you know, grew up into this civil rights activist. He was he was molded by that even in his early life and his childhood. So he grew up in an interesting area, historically speaking, a place called Chester County, Pennsylvania. So historically, Chester County, Pennsylvania was a Quaker settlement, and it was filled with homes that acted as stops on the Underground Railroad during the Civil War. There was a community of pacifists and early civil rights activists who all lived in houses along that area. So, like, you know, it's important to note that this didn't negate the racism that existed in Pennsylvania and in Chester County. There, There were still segregated schools. There was still blatant racism and ethnicism abound in various ways, Italian and Irish families even had an extent of, of this sort of thing. Russian was born and grew up, by the way, I should preface this by saying he grew up and born in the late 1800s, in like the 1870s, born in 1864. So at this time, there was still a lot of sort of hate towards Catholicism, towards Italians, towards um, Irish families, that sort of thing. Uh, most virulently, the, the, the most sort of blatant form of racism was actually towards Jewish families and Jewish communities in the county but black folks still went to a separate school they had to sit in separate areas of theaters weren't allowed to eat food at restaurants they had to go home to use the washroom they weren't allowed to use any sort of public washroom spaces or anything like that so so you know i want to set chester county in its historical context as as a quaker settlement and as a place that has like a connection to this really cool historical form of activism but also, it's really important to say that that didn't, you know, wash its hands of, of any sort of uh, racism or, or segregation-based effects during Russian's lifetime. Uh, th- those are definitely still in place. It's simply more that he, he lived in an area where there was enough history related to Quakerism and pacifism and, you know, equality and racial equality and that sort of thing that he sort of grew up inherently surrounded by those ideas. And so as he was growing up, he, was, he, he had access to thoughts and, and, and ideas and conversations that would help sort of mold his views in, in the direction of nonviolence and in the direction of racial equality and that sort of thing. So it's a pretty neat place to grow up, uh, you know, even though it is surrounded by segregation, of course, it's still a really neat historical area. Um, so he also lived in a fascinating historical moment, uh, the moment known as the Great Migration. Do either of you know what the Great Migration is at all? Yeah, Katie? Yes. Katie, Katie, my fellow expert for this episode, Katie, what what is the Great Migration? <laughs> wow. So I said yes, and I'm hoping I'm right. It's it's the movement from the south to the north, mm-hmm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. So it's like the late 1800s after the restor. Is it the Restoration era? Oh, Reconstruction. Reconstruction. Yeah, after Reconstruction. Reconstruction. Yeah. After Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Everybody moved. Not everybody. Lots About of families. Millions moved of north. people. Yeah. 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 Millions of, of African Americans moved from the south to the north. Uh, looking for jobs, looking for like possible better racial treatment, which they totally didn't. They found it in a in a different way, in a in a politer, <laughs> uh, less explicit way, shall we say? Yeah, I know what you mean. Actually, there's like a church near where I live where they're saying like, yeah, we invited the, the black community that immigrated up uh, to the north. Mm-hmm. We invited them here and provided them with land, but then turns out like the land that they were given was 
completely unfertile oh, like yeah. they couldn't even work with it the conditions were terrible yeah. and they ended up having to abandon the community Absolutely. so it's like mm, yeah way to go yeah and and it's fascinating places like detroit where like detroit was one of the major like detroit uh, uh new york chicago all these major urban centers in the north were where they went to because that's where the jobs were and 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 living conditions uh, and and you know northern racism is often defined as this very subtle sort of like not in my backyard kind of kind of racism where like i'm i'm not i'm not going to say that you can't do anything you know we don't have segregation up here but but you're still not equal and and that sort of thing and yet so like they they claim this idea like we don't have segregation we're not like the south we're we're kinder and more understanding and yet if you look at like the demographics of where black folks lived in places like detroit they had segregation it was just a de facto form of segregation it was like a a, not written into law but it was certainly there certainly present in those sorts of spaces and so uh yeah so in in any case so so the great migration was going on during rustin's childhood and rustin uh, of course living in pennsylvania his home was basically a way station for a lot of these families so like they're like when families were migrating to the north his home acted as like a little hotel for for black families who are heading up to these major urban centers and so you know he remembers like he and he and his brothers and sisters would be hustled out of bed late at night to make room for a family which didn't have anywhere else to go and and were passing through town and that sort of thing and so he like he was used to at the like as a child from the outset he was used to this idea of giving other people his bed and and the sense of black community and togetherness and kindness and, and, and everything like that, that, that would become such a staple of his form of activism in the future. So that's a really neat idea as well, that he was just like, he was a part of the great migration in such a nuanced way. in such a different way than, than simply just moving from the South to the North or that sort of thing. He was actually a part of like watching people do so. It was a pretty neat idea. In addition to that fucking wild, we're still on his childhood because does anybody know what the NAACP is? The National, oh, what's the National Association for? for the Advancement I... of Colored People. There we go. The yes. NAACP, yeah. which was an organization formed after the Civil War because of lynching and new race-based caste systems that, that existed sort of in place of slavery, including segregation. It essentially was established and created while Rustin was a child. And his grandmother was one of the very first members of the local chapter of the organization. And so, like, like you know, Pennsylvania, Chester County, Pennsylvania's chapter of, of the NAACP, one of the founding members was Rustin's grandmother, who, like, was really the most maternal person to him when, when he was growing up. His, his, his grandparents were really like his parents in a lot of ways. So, like, he, living in a home that was used as a way station for people moving through the Great Migration, as well as having his, like, maternal figure being one of the founding members of the local chapter of the NAACP. This guy was, like, fucking born to be an activist. But that's not all, because there's one more goddamn thing. <laughs> I can't believe it. Okay, so you may be familiar with some of these names, but folks like James Weldon Johnson, Mary McLeod, and W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, rather Du Bois, I apologize, stayed in Rustin's home when they came through town. Rustin literally grew up with the former generation's black civil rights leaders in his house. Like, the people who were, who were, like, at the head, at the front of any sort of black activism that was going on post-Civil War, including people like Du Bois, like, stayed in his home. Wow. Like, wow. Ah! (laughs) 
Like, that's nuts. That's insane. <laughs> He's so connected to this larger story, right? And yet we don't recognize him as this person. Like, like, like it's it's almost like, uh, like semi-ironically, it's almost like he sort of, his story is about, like, everyone around him who everyone else knows. And he was just sort of there the whole time in all these different spots, but no one really knows about him, you know? Like, everyone knows King, and everyone knows the March on Washington, and everyone knows the Civil Rights Movement, and everyone knows nonviolent direct action, and all these figures that I just mentioned, and, and organizations and historical moments. And he was, like, a part of it. He was just there. And Yeah, he's kind of like the web itself. Yeah, right? And that's why I love him as a figure, because yeah. if you just, like, read his life, you just learn about Black history for, like, almost a century. And it's, it's really, really neat thinking about it in, in that context. So the last thing I'll talk about in terms of his early life, just to get, get a better sense of, of him in his formative years, he's often described as some sort of equivalent to a Renaissance man. In, in that when he was in like high school, when he was in, in high school, he won essay contests. He won oratory awards. He was a track and football star. He published poetry in the school magazine. He acted in school plays. He was elected to student government. He was one of few commencement speakers. And he placed into a classical curriculum that emphasized languages, literature, and mathematics. So this this guy did yeah. it all in his, in his high school. Like he, Yeah, he's definitely crazy. the student where the teachers are like oh yeah he's going Absolutely, somewhere yeah it, it, in my <laughs> yeah. massive biography here i have bookmarked one thing which is a poem that he wrote in high school that i'd like to recite for you folks so i ask of you no shining gold i seek not epitaph or fame no monument of stone for me for man need never speak my name but when my flesh doth waste away and seeds from stately trees do blow I pray that in my fertile clay you gently let a small seed grow. That seed, I pray, be evergreen, that in my dust may always be, that everlasting life and joy you manifest in that green tree. Did he just wow. write his he own prophecy? <laughs> yeah. So that's this guy. That's that's who he is as a person. That that That's his formative years, essentially, as he grows up into an activist. That's who he is. And that poem is just gorgeous. And it really relates to this idea that, like, he never really sought the spot, the spotlight. And so as we'll get into a little bit later, it's sort of like there are internal factors, it seems, in terms of why he may not have been at the heads of the movements, as well as external factors as to why he was often forgotten and that sort of thing. But he never really, he seemed, he, he was the kind of pure soul, the kind of activist you honest to God want, where he believes the movement is bigger than he is. That he doesn't care if he's remembered, he just wants to put the work in. And, you know, like people like that are, are, in my opinion, some of the best kind of people. And, and that's why I love them. Uh, so transitioning now from his early life, we're now going to start talking about some of his first forms of activism. And this is one of my favorite parts solely because it has very little to do with civil rights. And that's what's really neat is that you often think of these civil rights activists as just sort of becoming activists in that moment. But he actually started in a completely different field, and that's anti-war protests. So 
Rustin's nonviolent direct action work began uh, with these anti-war protests, and while they sort of they eventually do blend into civil rights protests at the same time, he'll do a few civil rights-based things while also doing anti-war stuff. And it's always important to 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 acknowledge that nothing is ever really separate in history. Just for the sake of the podcast, I just want to talk about anti-war first, and then we'll talk into, uh, about civil rights later. But there will be a few dates that that will like sort of line up as as being basically at the same time. But he really started his work with anti-war stuff particularly with groups that were uh, interested in socialism, interested in communism, interested in, in anti-war in general, and pacifism and that sort of thing. So he, he worked for a group for a very long time. The group was named FOR, which stands for Fellowship of Reconciliation. Rustin visited uh, 20 states, over 10,000 miles, spoke to more than 5,000 people, and lectured on 17 campuses about nonviolence and peace over war. So he, he just toured the whole country doing this over and over again in various college campuses. Right, okay, so I'm just curious if you guys have any thoughts on, on nonviolence as, as wider than just about civil rights. This idea that, like, non, nonviolent direct action not being associated with the civil rights movement. Have you ever thought about such a thing before? Well, like, I would think of the... Well, I don't know how much this is nonviolence direct action, but, um, like, all of the anti-Vietnam protests, and, of course, there were anti-World War two protests and anti-World War One and all of that, um, which were, I don't know too much about them, but I assume they were more like um, March protests, like not necessarily the same, but a similar idea, like the pacifists, the, the choosing not to contribute to the war. Yeah, of. yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a, uh, definitely a huge part of it. Robin, do you have any thoughts before I continue? Uh, yeah, it just makes me think of Gandhi because we watched a movie once cool. in high school. <laughs> Great. Gandhi will come up. So we'll, we'll come back we to Gandhi in, in a little bit. But yeah, so like when I was researching Rustin again, it always like hits me in this interesting way where it just feels like history can sometimes be separate to people, right? Like especially if you don't study it. Like if you just sort of, you do your, your public school history bit and then you move on in the world. Like you don't see always the connections between everything and how it's all really one big tapestry, right? And so with the civil rights movement being so focused on nonviolent direct action, but like, you know, peaceful protest and, and being peaceful while you protest is not simply something that happens during the civil rights movement. And it's also not something that just happens during anti-war protests by white people. It's that like, we have this black figure who will become a major civil rights activist who was doing nonviolent violent direct action uh, with, with a cause that wasn't black rights related at first, which I think is just such an interesting thing to think about in that sort of uh, that sort of way so uh going forward into the war a little bit more world war ii included drafts called induction notices and pacifists acted as conscientious ex uh, objectors and refused to serve in the military which would often lead to their arrest I have another quote from D'Amelio here where he says one of six inmates in federal prison during world war ii were objectors to war these prisoners of conscience were turning the institutions upside down. Administrators and guards normally dealt with bank robbers, embezzlers, tax evaders, and Appalachian moonshiners. How they found themselves faced with a population of highly educated men driven by philosophy and social activism and a fierce sense of their moral autonomy. So this was like the new face of a huge aspect of prisons at this time where, where several sort of activist political prisoners almost who had ideas and were willing to share them and were willing to talk to these guards about them and so like these guards were like i don't understand I, I don't care what are you talking about with your <laughs> non-violent stuff what the fuck you know and, and so a really interesting sort of look into what the prison system looked like at the time 
So Rustin, of course, did this and uh, was arrested. He, while in prison, started sit-ins and nonviolent protests. Just, like, in the prisons in general. And this is why nonviolent direct action can work. Rustin approached incarceration from a stance of moral righteousness. I'm doing another quote here from D'Amelio. He saw his agitation not as troublemaking, but as ennobling. It threatened disorder, but in the pursuit of justice, efforts to discipline him became proof of the effectiveness of his campaign. Attempts at reason only opened the door for Rustin to articulate his cause. To Rustin's mind, the prison, not the pacifist, needed fixing. So many protests happened in the prison to protest against segregation as well. So this is this is the first sort of intersection where we see him doing anti-war protests at the same time as civil rights-based protests. So he's protesting segregation within the prison system. He refused to sit in colored sections of the cafeteria. He demanded, and, and theater as well, he demanded that he would be allowed in cell blocks that had white inmates only and so on. So he, he did countless sit-ins with black inmates about segregation while in prison, which is fucking cool as hell. Yeah. yeah, like, while I'm here. You know what would improve this place? You know, right? And and so, like, like, but this is what I'm talking about. His complete conviction to his cause, where, like, no matter where he is, no matter what's going on in his life, he is willing and ready and acting on these on these needs to, to protest and participate in nonviolent direct action movements and that sort of thing. Yeah, he's never sitting idle, eh? Uh, no, literally never, right? He's he's the opposite of, of a person without a cause. He literally, he has too many. <laughs> wonder if the boy had adhd i really wonder anyway so quick note because there is lots to to still talk about but after he he was released from prison in 19 well he okay he was released from prison a couple years past and then a major event i want to very briefly mention is that in 1948 he went to india to learn from gandhian activists about nonviolent direct action and he shared his experiences with american racial tensions and so it was this moment of like shared knowledge of like okay so this is how your government treated you under under british rule and everything like that well for me you know how, uh, you know, segregation is, is such a horrible thing and the racism is rampant and all that sort of stuff. And, and he was able to sort of like literally like share that they're doing the same thing. They're both acting in pacifist ways. And Gandhi in teaching said like reached people like for the organization he worked for a long while ago. And so like, like people knew about the Gandhian uh, tactics and, and that sort of thing. But it was just a great moment for Rustin to go and see his... Uh, uh, like all these people doing it, uh, same sort of pacifist work in India and start to learn from them and bring back what he learned to the United States. Okay, I believe that's all I wanted to say about that. Okay, so moving on now to probably the main event of what we're wanting to talk about for, for a, a lot of this episode, and that is his work on civil rights movements. So of course he started with anti-war protests, did some civil rights along the way, but civil rights movement protests and, and, and that sort of area of social justice was really where he made his mark for the most part. So he's about, a, a, as I said before, about a generation older than King and X. And so he was still young enough to participate in the movement, but older so that he acted as a bit more of an advisor to, to King in particular. He didn't really have a lot to do with Malcolm X because of their differing ideologies, but King in particular, he became a very strong advisor of. But also, and this is very important to me, he, and again, a reason why I love him as a figure, because he has so many different, like, dynamic, as Robin was saying, this big web of civil rights and black history in America overall, is that his being a generation older exemplifies a crucial aspect of civil rights history that's normally lost, which is that it never stopped. 
people often think, right, that, that we had abolitionists that led to the end of slavery, and then everything was fine, and then suddenly people thought that segregation wasn't okay, so we had about a decade worth of protests, and then everything was fine again, and then after a while, now Black Lives Matter is here, and now after, after that, everything will be fine again, and so that's not how it works, is that black activism never stopped, and figures like Rushton are evidence of that, that being a generation older he, if he was an advisor to people like King, he had to get the experience somewhere, right? And so it's not like he, he just sort of had knowledge one day. It's that he had his own activism years that led to his knowledge that he passed on to other activists and, and figures in, in the 50s and 60s. And so he's just uh, another just fascinating aspect of his character, or as not really character, I guess, uh, of him as a figure is, is just that he acted in this in this advisory role which, and change which yeah which which really shows that <laughs> that activism never really ends that way yeah i'm just thinking of like because we learned about that in our history class where mm -hmm. it's like it's not cause and consequence or cause and effect it's more continuity and change or continuity and change yeah that's it so yeah. things never end it's always yeah. moving shout out to mike dove who always talks yeah. about that all the flipping time <laughs> mike is great <laughs> please keep saying that all right, so so that's what's really neat about him, and 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 to further exemplify this with some actual examples, <laughs> um, in, in in when talking about how he was an activist in times before the fifties and sixties, he was protesting civil rights atrocities across the states for his whole adult life, and I have two wonderful examples from the nineteen forties, and these examples, the reason why I picked them in particular, one because they're really fabulous stories, and and two because they really emulate two very famous situations from the 50s and 60s which again show that that's not necessarily when the movement as we know it may have started so the first one is a, a story about him sitting at a lunch counter so this happened in 1942 he went to a local diner in a small midwestern college town while he was doing those tours for anti-war protests he was ignored by the racist uh, uh sort of waitress in that moment and after a big conversation about why he was being ignored by this waitress the manager and waitress rather i suppose the manager came out and then the manager and waitress together told him that it was because of a possible quote-unquote loss of business he was being ignored because if they acknowledged his presence they might have customers leave and that sort of thing essentially being you're black and and so if you're in here we're gonna lose business so get out is is like if we're you know being clear about what they were inten intending and what they were really saying so, instead of being deterred, uh, Rustin made a deal with them, where he would sit near the front door and have a waiter serve him and just sort of act normally and he'd have a regular meal. And just, like, to essentially show the manager, he just said to the manager, see if anyone comes into the restaurant, rather, who has come into the restaurant, see if anyone who has come into the restaurant leaves as a result of this. And if they do, then, like, you're right and I'll leave. Okay. Well, the meal happens, no one leaves, and he gets his delicious meal, and the manager, after that point, continued to serve black people in the future, because of, of what Rustin was able to teach him in that moment. And so, like, that's just, the, like, that's the power of this man, that he can just, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, just... No, exactly, because I would have freaked out, I think. Yeah. I would have been, like, yeah. as if. as He was so, like, I guess he's just cool-headed, and I don't know. I mean, and 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 Above we haven't uh, right, and we, well, we ha and we haven't really gotten into his his gayness yet, uh, but the way as a man, <laughs> great, great, 
great word. Thank you. <laughs> I think it's, it's nicer. I, I like it. Um, so, as, as, <laughs> as we'll talk about with that a little later on, he is a figure who was unabashedly himself and just at one point didn't give it. There's, there's, there's a great story, a little aside here, where he was on a bus and there was a little baby who was playing with his tie. And the mother of the baby essentially like pulled the baby back and was like, what are you doing talking to that N-word and like saying some terrible stuff like, what the heck is going on? Essentially agitated to the point where the bus driver told him to go sit at the back of the bus. And he went and sat back there and he sat down and he thought to himself like, why am I the one who's being forced to leave right now? Like, why, like, why, why do I have to sit here? That, that doesn't feel right. I don't like that. So I'm just, I'm just literally, I'm just going to say, never mind. And he walked to the front of the bus, sat down on the front of the bus and just like chatted with the driver. Every time the driver was like, Hey, you got to get back to the back of the bus. And he would just like, keep talking to the driver about why he felt, felt like he belonged at the front. And he just like sat there and, and he, and he stayed at the front of the bus the whole time. Hell yeah. Right? So, like, this is this is a man who who lived in a time with so much hate and oppression towards his identity that, that he just, he literally just said, fuck it, and was going to live his life anyway. And, and that was that. And his pacifist nature and his Quaker upbringing really drove that point home where he was able to, to have that attitude where, where a shopkeep would tell him such a thing or, a, or a, a waitress would tell him such a thing and he would just be able to very calmly just sort of manage the situation because that's, that's just kind of who he was and how he was raised. So that's one story. The second story is about a Greyhound bus. And this took place in 1946. So in 1946, the Supreme Court ruled that segregation was not allowed on any buses that moved through the north, even those that would eventually go en route to the south, if that makes sense. So meaning if a black person got in a Greyhound in New York and took it all the way down to Mississippi, they could sit at the front for the entire ride because it was it was between states that, that had segregation and didn't. And so the ones that didn't would supersede the ones that did. So clearly, Rustin, uh, along with uh, other uh, civil rights activists at the time, didn't buy that this, was, this would actually be the case. And there were accounts of anti-black racism, harassment, and violence in the South at Greyhound bus stops after this was passed by the Supreme Court. So to show that this rule by the Supreme Court was bullshit... He organized a nonviolent direct action protest where he and other activists rode buses and trains into the South and refused to move. That's literally, that, that, that's what he did. He rode along on these buses all the way into the South, eventually getting arrested several times, people trying to beat him up and everything. Like, but yeah, he just, they just kept going with it, right? So that's that story. And, 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 and the story I told you before do we have any idea what these stories remind us of in terms of the fifties and sixties and everything? Well, obviously Rosa Parks. That's the, that's the yeah. human. <laughs> yeah. So that's one of them. That's, that's absolutely one of them is Rosa Parks. Yes. The other one, I don't know if you've heard of the Walgreen sit-ins before. Oh yeah. For the, the four, they were college students. Yeah. 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 And they, they just sat, yeah. At, yeah. They sat in the whites area and um, yeah, we're like, beaten to crap and everything like that but but very similar kinds of protests that were happening decades at least one decade before before rosa parks if not two decades before the walgreens sit-in and so like these situations that rustin placed himself in and performed nonviolent direct action in were like just as valid and significant in his time as the ones in the 50s and 60s and just show again that rustin as a figure really sort of could be seen as a bridge that that takes us from the beginning of the 20th century up until the civil rights movement and that's why i think he's really cool as well because he's just a fucking awesome guy 
Anyways, moving on. Uh, I now want to talk about Martin Luther King and his connection to Rustin because this is a very significant relationship that develops for better and for worse in certain certain situations. So Rustin was the figure who introduced nonviolent direct action to King. It was literally the reason why King did nonviolent direct action in the first place. Like, I need to be clear about this. If it was not for Rustin, King may not have been convinced to do nonviolent direct action. He was, you know, interested in the idea, but he was not philosophically committed the same way Rustin was. So this is what, when I say that he's a background figure who is like necessary for the civil rights history that we know about, this is the biggest reason I can think of as to why he was, he was the person who introduced and taught King how to do nonviolent direct action, which is nuts to me. So just like, let that like sink in the air for a second. Okay, so I, I have a, qu a quote from Rustin here where he says, the fact of the matter is when I got to Montgomery, Dr. King had very limited notions about how a nonviolent protest should be carried out. So when he met King for the first time, there were guns all over King's house. It's like loaded weapons all over the place. In fact, there's a funny story where Rustin and a man named Bill Worthy uh, visited King in the early stage of their relationship and Worthy was about to sit on the chair when Rustin said, wait, there's a couple of guns in that chair. You don't want to shoot yourself. <laughs> like for real, like, like yeah. Oh my King had a bunch of guns in his house, which is really wild, right? And so D'Amelio, the, the author of this book, explains that uh, efforts either by King's followers or by historians to present King as a fully developed Gandhian at the start of the boycott were a disservice to the man because he, the, the really interesting about King is that he was able to latch on to these ideas and think about them and want to like act upon them of his own accord. He's, he's the perfect example of someone who learned about nonviolent direct action and chose that path, which is a really interesting nuanced take on a historical figure, but one that isn't really referenced in pop culture in general. So Rustin said, uh, he had not been prepared for the job, either tactically, strategically, or in his understanding of nonviolence. The glorious thing, though, is that he came to a profoundly deep understanding of nonviolence through the struggle itself. So Rustin was so ready and so excited to teach King about nonviolent direct action, and their relationship grew in a really interesting and, and like personal way between the two of them. So if you remember the trip to India that I mentioned before, this is perhaps one of the most interesting pieces of information that Rustin learned during that trip, which he gave to King. So, Indians who followed Gandhi were not always true believers in nonviolence and its inherent philosophy. They followed him and his movement more than the principle of the movement itself. So they were proponents of nonviolence really because it was a good tactic, and they believed it was the most effective and efficient way to overthrow British rule in India. Does that make sense? Like, they weren't full-on pacifists mm -hmm. themselves, but they thought, if we do this, we can mm -hmm. be free. Well, that was even his philosophy, right? Yeah. Not to control anybody. Yeah, right? And so, and so Rustin took this, and he imparted this uh, knowledge he has to King, explaining that the most significant thing is for the leader of a movement to seem, at least seem, like an unabashed believer in the principle of nonviolence. So if members of the movement see a well-known figure believing in the principle for its own philosophical sake, they will be more willing to believe in it as a tactic, just like with Gandhi. A, a quote from Rustin where he says, if in the flow and heat of battle, a leader's house is bombed and he shoots back, this is an encouragement to his followers to pick up guns. 
If, on the other hand, he has no guns around him, and they all know it, they will rise to the nonviolent occasion of a situation. Essentially, the leader is the model and mold for every other member of the movement, right? And so that's, that's the fascinating thing where he essentially convinces MLK, who wasn't inherently a pacifist, to like, it, it's a situation where I imagine it being like, listen, either believe in the, phil the, the, the philosophy full-heartedly or pretend to, because if you don't do either of those two things, this movement isn't going to happen, <laughs> you know? Like, which is like, this man is so cool. Yeah, so <laughs> smart. Ah, he's amazing. Okay. So anyway, and we can also in this situation see how strongly Rustin stuck to his principle, how unwavering he is, or rather was, in nonviolence, even when discussing it as a tactic and political tool. Like he, he really believed in it so much so that he, he was willing to like concede that not everyone had to believe in it the way that he did, but because he not only believed in it as a philosophy, but he also believed in it as the best tactic and, and method for achieving um, civil rights. Which is just so, so, so interesting to me. So speaking of the civil rights movement, speaking of Martin Luther King and all that sort of stuff, the main, the other main thing I really want to talk about here is protests. Because particularly if you do read John D'Amelio's book, I, I gotta say the middle, like 150 pages, it can sometimes feel like the same chapter over and over and over again. Because Rustin's life for the 50s and 60s was just joining different organizations, helping them build protest movements and that sort of thing, helping them build protests themselves, having the protests happen, moving on to the next one, et cetera, et cetera, rinse and repeat. Like, like I could say one sentence that for 20 years of this man's life, he just organized protests and made them happen. And they were all kick-ass. And, you know, like, if you're interested in the fascinating work he did, he did stuff for decolonization in Africa, for anti-war protests, for other civil rights protests. If you want to know about all this stuff, Please read this biography because it 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 fucking slaps. But um, but <laughs> to to keep it brief here, there there's one protest I just want to talk about in specifics that were really important. And also, while I'm on the topic of of establishing organizations, he was also one of the founding members of the Su Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which is the main organization headed by Martin Luther King. So, like, if if King was involved in any organization in particular, the the uh, SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, was the main one. And so Rustin was a founding member of that group that King invited uh, to like the first meeting in the church where they had uh, uh, discussions about starting the organization. So we're going to talk about one event here, and that event is the March on Washington. Does anybody know about the March on Washington? Anybody heard about it before? I was about to, I was about to say never heard of it, but uh, I have heard of it. Okay. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, uh, it is... It is for Robin, it is the march, rather, it is the protest. It, uh, it lasted a couple days, but it, it is the protest most famous because it has the speech where Martin Luther King says, I have a dream. Oh, his, I should know this. <laughs> yeah, his, 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 like where he said, has that speech, that is, that is the march on Washington. But the idea was to march on the Capitol itself to demand equal rights, that we're, we're taking it to the, the people at the top. We are not dealing with any middlemen here. We are going straight to the president, essentially. It was one of the most significant marches in all of the 50s and 60s civil rights movement. And D'Amelio, the author, connects, uh, contextualizes that. He he, essentially, he says, a generation later, marches on Washington became ritualized dramas. But uh, this was not the case in 1963. Then the idea was bold, fresh, and untried. 
no one had ever witnessed a mass descent on the nation's capital. Like, that is... The vibe of this is that, like, this is never done before, and they're like, we're gonna, like, bring every black person we can to Washington and and just, like, fill the streets and, and walk to, to various monuments and stuff, like the Washington Memorial Monument and the Lincoln Memorial Monument and everything like that. So that, that that's the sort of backdrop for the March on Washington. So they had eight weeks to plan the march and make it a reality. Just eight weeks. <laughs> I was going to say, that's not a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. Demelia says that those eight weeks were the busiest of Rustin's life. He had to build an organization out of... And that no- says a lot. <laughs> yeah, it really does. He had to build an organization out of nothing. He had to assemble a staff and shape them into a team able to perform under intense pressure. Uh, John Lewis, a well-known civil rights activist, said that this was Bayard at his best when he was planning this this whole like weekend affair. I actually don't know if it happened on the weekend. I shouldn't say that. I know it was two days long, so that's what I said. <laughs> anyway, Bayard said, We planned our, uh, out precisely the number of toilets that would be needed for a quarter of a million people, how many blankets we would need for the people who were coming in early, how many doctors, how many first aid stations, what people should bring with them to eat in their lunches. Plan it so that everybody would come into Washington after dark the night before and everybody would be out of Washington by sundown on the day of the march. We had, of course, to have fantastic planning of all the parking lots for the thousands of buses and autom- automobiles, all the all the various transportation forms that would be coming into town. Also, based on this quote, I think it might have actually just been one day and I just made up that it was two days. So we're just going to say that it was... Well, it's like, you know, 36 hours. Yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Something like that. In any case, so the rest is, is really just planning. But the point is that Rustin was in charge of, of one of the largest marches in the movement's history. That's how significant this figure is. He was like the man in charge of it right it exemplifies his role as a background advisor and influencer who who is fundamental to the movement but who is not the spotlight now there is one fun story that i think is really funny and especially as a theater kid i think it's hilarious so rustin planned for for the march itself planned two lines of marching that would begin at the washington monument monument uh, uh, and then they would have a, the crowd of people move to the lincoln memorial and and that would be how the march would be set up but the best intentions for this plan were apparent. And while that is true, some just poured into the street and headed toward the rally site. And thousands of others quickly followed. <laughs> <laughs> and so this boy who like spent eight weeks planning the perfect march just saw everybody just be like, let's start walking. And then they all just Classic people. It's Classic. Like, Whoa. Oh my gosh. So, and, and it's, it's amazing. He said, my God, they're going. And he scrambled to pull like the, the sort of, they're called the big 10, like the main people who were there to, to speak at the event, including King and other people. He pulled all of them together and inserted them in a break in the line in the March in different places and stuff. Literally improv thinking on his feet, being like, we got to slip wow. one here. We got to slip one here. We got to slip one here. And like, my favorite thing is that if you look at the photos for the March on Washington, if you look at any sort of like footage or, or photos of people marching and stuff, like it looks so planned. Like it looks so like everything went off without a hitch. And yet in the background, it was all improv. That makes me so happy. It's just so funny to me. And one of my favorite Emilio D'Amelio quotes comes from this as well, where he says, the irony of the leaders following the masses was not lost on this seasoned radical, which I think is quite funny. So the impact of these uh, of, of this march is pretty clear, where D'Amelio says, not too many years before, Rustin had been arrested simply for holding aloft a, pla- a placard along the route of New York's Easter Parade. Even in the wake of Birmingham, with protests erupting everywhere, demonstrations still seemed radical to most Americans, beyond the norms of civic culture. 
Now, he reflected, the march had brought moral power to mass protest. Disciplined and orderly, it had planted a seed deep in the American conscience whose fruit, he hoped, may someday astonish us. I just think that quote's really incredible in terms of like, that that's that's what nonviolent direct action can do, right? In such a huge context, that that's what it is, is people coming together for a, for a cause that like ignites something much bigger than itself, which I think is really cool. All right, one of the last sections I have for us today as we sort of start winding down, because that's like that's an incredible sort of like climax, right? We've gone on his journey from his early life, anti-war, civil rights in the forties. Martin Luther King, the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s, all the incredible stuff that he's done as a civil rights activist, never giving up. But there's one very significant aspect of Rustin's identity that we need to talk about. And I literally labeled this in my notes as being gay. <laughs> and that's and it. And that's it. He was, no, okay. Uh, so one of the most significant things to know about Rustin is that he was uh, rarely afraid to tell anyone that he was gay. I mentioned this a little bit before. He said that he liked men, if anyone asked, which often got him in trouble. But Rustin was simply a man who stuck to his morals, and he believed that he should be allowed to openly love who he loved, and, and that should be it, right? So Rustin certainly had doubts about his sexuality and wrestled with it, both internally and externally. And, you know, he wrestled with it spiritually, this is a great time to mention that Rustin had, was a devoutly religious man who saw nonviolence as a mission from God as much as anything else. His Quaker upbringing instilled in him a spiritual and higher calling-based nature to his activism and work. But his religiousness also complicated his thoughts on his sexuality because of all the, the many denominations of Christianity who propagate negative uh, uh, attitudes and, and hate towards homosexuality. So beyond his grapp grappling with sexuality internally, there were two major external factors that I want to mention uh, for the episode. The first of which is the law, and the second of which will actually be civil rights leaders and organizers, which is really interesting. But first, the law, of course. Rustin was arrested various times for his sexual activity, including at least one sexual misconduct charge while he was in prison. There's a, a particularly powerful story, or, or rather, a, the perhaps the most significant story about how the law got in the way of his feelings about his sexuality, which took place in 1953. Uh, so one day he, wa he was wandering the streets of Pasadena, California at around three in the morning and a car with two young white men drove by and Rustin waved at them. The car stopped and Rustin asked if they wanted a good time and offered to perform oral sex with them. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, he, whoa, whoa, whoa! This they escalated. Yeah. It, it really did. I, 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 I allow me Take to contextualize. Take me to dinner first. Allow, allow me to. Uh, I, Rustin had sex with a bunch of people. Like, <laughs> I think there were. I think there were actually a few. I mean, like again, being gay in this time period was was really difficult because like there was like a lot of excitement and sort of forbiddenness about having gay sex and everything, and so it's 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 so hard to place heteronormative ideas of what a relationship is, of what sex means onto a, a, a gay person in this time because their perspective of sexuality is so different, right? And so I think there's been at least a couple moments in Rustin's life where he was in a relationship and was having sex with other people at the same time. I don't know whether or not that would be considered cheating based on his partner and his relationship and what they discussed privately. But I do know he, I, I, he, he did that at least once. Um, in any case, though, he, he, I mean, like, he liked sex, like, this, this, and he was, 
a certified hottie. And he pulled because he was hot. Yeah. I was about to say <laughs> that. <laughs> All right. So anyway, so he so he offered this and they agreed. Uh, and in the midst of it, some county police officers drove by while it was happening and arrested the three of them for lewd vagrancy. Now, obviously, <laughs> anyone having sex so publicly would likely get them arrested. Yeah. Right. So, like, I want to be clear about that. But the effect of this, the incident particularly harmed Rustin's images, image, both because of having sex publicly, but also mainly because it was with two men. And that, like, the, so the sort of stain that this situation would leave on his career after it happened in, in the 50s, in 1953, would main, like, mainly be about that he did it with, with two men. So it, his, his homosexuality was still a really significant factor of this situation. He had to resign from his position with four, the group that I mentioned before. And to uh, best sort of contextualize this little story that I've told. Uh, I'll leave it to D'Amelio with two very strong quotes that he has in the book where he says, as, as both the peace and civil rights movements grew dramatically over the next decade, as the philosophy of nonviolence became familiar to millions of Americans, Rustin's influence was everywhere. Yet he remained always in the background, his figure shadowy and blurred, his importance masked. Underneath it all was the unexamined, because as yet unnamed, it was homophobia that permeated mid-century American society. Regarding the gay experience, he, he, D'Amelio writes that the Pasadena incident was an event waiting to happen. It was emblematic of gay life in this era. Men were regularly arrested on charges of lewd behavior for dancing with one another in a gay bar or on charges of disorderly conduct simply for patronizing the bar. They were arrested for solicitation when they asked another man to go home with them. They were arrested for loitering when they stood too close on a city street known to be a cruising strip. The police arrested gay men who had sex in secluded public places like the back seats of cars or urban parks at night. Arrests of gay men were common rather than exceptional, with hundreds occurring each day in the United States. So it's just, it's like what the story really represents is obviously, and very seriously, would be the, the level of sort of policing, like as a term, like, like, like surveilling of the gay community in the period. Yeah, go ahead. Katie, you have your hand up. When was homosexuality decriminalized in the U.S.? Do you know? Hell if I know. This is this is an expert episode on Rustin. I don't. I'm not an expert on that particular topic. Maybe safe to assume that it wasn't legal. Oh at, yeah, no. During his time at so. all. <laughs> Sorry, I would just like you to all know. I just googled it, um, and it all the remaining laws against same-sex sexual activity were invalidated in 2003. Oh, see, there you go. So, cheers. The U.S. is a really messed up place. Yeah, almost <sighs> 20 years. <laughs> Great. So, uh, But I think by 1962 okay. is when it kind of like started. So that's, that's the law. And then the second external factor that really forced Rustin to like deal with his sexuality in a way where like he had to really think about how it affected him and, and ways that he really grappled and struggled with it actually came from organizers of civil rights protest right and so like it's it's one thing like again the public perception of history is far less nuanced than us who are trained in how to like think about history more clinically and, and more specifically and, and nuancedly in nuanced ways whatever anyway the point is in in the public consciousness you often see historical figures as good guys or as bad guys right and so 
while a lot of people see the police as good guys, at least for certain members of our society, it's pretty easy to be like, oh, so, like, what was a problem for gay men in the 50s? The police. Yeah, duh. The law? Yeah, <laughs> duh. You know what I mean? Like, that's, like, that, that, that's, that's obvious, right? And, and yet, organizers, including King, including other advisors to King, and other major players in the civil rights movement were major barricades and, and barriers for Rustin getting any sort of recognition in, in this period. And we see them as the good guys, right? And so it's, it's really important when you're thinking about topics like gay history, like queer history in general, like uh, oppression towards queer folks in the 20th century, you, you, you gotta understand that like, even people who had really good intentions in certain ways did not have good intentions in all ways. And, and, that's that's just a part of history and it sucks and it's not good but it, it is what it is in that case right in terms of studying it um and we can see the same sort of thing in terms of like the suffragette movement in the in the uh beginning of the 20th century or late 18th uh, late 19th century you know where, where like frederick Douglass would be like let's just or or yeah where frederick Douglass when when the in the constitution it was amended that uh, black people had the right to vote where he was like let's just have black people get this victory right now like women's time will come we're just going to do black people right now for this thing, right? And so, like, there have always been divides in terms of oppressed groups because, you know, you're fighting for your thing and now you kind of have to, like, in the very horribly, like, twisted way our society works where, like, essentially oppressed folks are pitted against each other in a lot of situations in these ways, right? And and often not even so clinically as with the Frederick Douglass example. Like, in the case where where I'm about to talk about with, with King and folks, it's, it's just their own biases that have been sort of taught to them over time right and so it's, it's not even something as simple as like gay rights needs to wait a second because we need civil rights to happen now it's not something like that it's just like they they inherently had prejudices toward homosexuality and often it wouldn't matter a lot because as i said rustin was a figure who would just sort of tell people that he liked men if they asked he was never one to hide it and so it wasn't that they found out and then got rid of him or something like that but like it <sighs> It just sort of severely impacted what rooms he was allowed in, uh, especially as the movement developed and gained more traction in the late 50s and into the 60s. So, you know, King would often call Rustin late at night and ask for advice or help clear his mind, like really good friends, right? But there were a few years where King would not contact Rustin at all. He was ordered by advisors and from his own beliefs to not associate with Rustin because of his sexuality. You know, one of these instances was actually a, a threat because uh, that someone, like one of King's enemies, was essentially threatening King, saying that he would leak a fake story that King and Rustin were having an affair together, and so like to sort of distance themselves from like literally no homo, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what <laughs> to distance himself from that, like his advisors were like, "We need to, we need to not have Rustin around for a little while," and that sort of thing. And so they had a really complicated relationship where there would be like it's sort of an on again, off again sort of. You know, at the core, King really loved Rustin and saw him as a really powerful mentor and advisor and someone that he really wanted to have in his corner. But then there'd be times where he just wouldn't either be allowed to because of public perception or personal bias. And then he'd sort of come back around and then leave again. And so Rustin was like left out to dry so many times. And so he was involved in the movement throughout the 60s and, and various protests and that sort of thing. But like, he, he would often have to force himself into the room, especially as time went on, especially after incidences like what happened in Pasadena that were so public where he, you know, he was now technically a sex offender or whatever in terms of 
being publicly lewd. And so now, now he, it, that limited even more doors for him to, to enter. And so he really, so like with the March on Washington, he had to push to make that happen. He, he had to like force these people to be like, we got to do it. We got, and you gotta let me do it. Uh, and they, and they agreed because they knew he'd be great at it, but there was always this sort of tension in the room that existed because of his sexuality. And as I said before, at the very beginning, Rustin believed in, in nonviolence and in protest and in earning civil rights as, as something higher than himself. And so I think that like from my basic psychoanalysis of what I've been reading over the past couple of days to prep for this episode, it, it really seems like he believed things were more important than his own feelings. And so he would rather get the march to happen and have to deal with some awkwardness in terms of people not understanding his sexuality or, or, or having biases towards him being gay and still get it done. He'd rather do that than not do it at all. At all. And so, uh, but, but it's just, it's an interesting aspect of his identity and it's a significant intersection of who he was and it really affected him in, in serious ways in terms of all the topics that I had talked about earlier on. So that's why I really want to talk about not just that he was gay or that was an aspect of his life that he had, but it really affected him and the situations that, that I talked about previously. So to sort of conclude this episode, thanks for sticking with me throughout this amazing deep dive into one of the coolest historical figures that I, I have ever read about. I want to talk about how he's been forgotten over time. His contributions are rarely discussed. As we've said, generally it's because of his sexuality and especially because of his open sexuality and how vocal he was simply about being gay. But also, he was never the face of a movement. He worked diligently on so many protests and with so many groups, so many movements. He was just always involved, always trying and never stopping, bringing nonviolent direct action everywhere that he went with him, but never being the face of it. So while he was in the background, it's it's always a question that I that that I don't know if I, I I don't know if I could ever answer it. I don't know if anyone could really ever answer it based on the historical record available. But like, you know, was he was he not in the spotlight simply because he was openly and proudly gay, or was there something else? Right? Like he never seemed like the person who sought the spotlight, but was also not the person who shunned himself from the spotlight necessarily. Like could, like external internal factors. It, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know really if there's an answer in terms of whether he would have wanted to be remembered so much as King was in, in that way, if that makes sense. Not to suggest that his being forgotten is okay. I'm not trying to, to, to justify he should be remembered, goddammit. But, but, you know, just like thinking about it, like, of course, there are so many reasons and arguably the most significant ones. Because it's not just his gayness, right? It's like he, he was a communist, or at least for a while, he was, he was labeled a communist and... and he supported the Communist Party for a little while. Definitely a socialist, at least. He was an anti-war protester. He was gay. He was black. He, you know, he lived in mid-20th century America. Like, this man was not... If we think about why Martin Luther King is remembered, like, this is not a figure that white educators and, and people who are, like, in charge of the education of the country, who they would want seen <laughs> or want taught to their children, you know? Like, there's no way that this guy would ever be taught to their children in, in, in terms of who he was and his identity beyond just his homosexuality. So that, that is definitely the main reason. But there's always questions I have in myself of like, like, it didn't seem like he really wanted to be the center of attention. But he, you know, even though he definitely should be remembered still, you don't have to be the center of attention to be remembered. But there's always something that I think about, especially with that poem where it seems like it's just really valiant of him and really cool of him 
and one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about him because that that he cared so much more about the movement than he did about his involvement in it. And I think that's really really neat. And so I have one little thing to close out, but I, I it's just sort of coming to me now. But I I think like. I don't know how many podcast episodes or History Channel episodes or whatever are ever going to be dedicated so wholeheartedly to Bayard Rustin. And so I really want to like sort of drive that point home as our listeners are, and you guys are finishing to learn about him and all of his accomplishments. It's just that like he, he should be remembered. And, and hopefully this episode does that. And hopefully like we, we, we can remember all the different things that he did and how interesting and cool he was, but how complicated he was and, and all that sort of stuff. And there's so much more to explore. Like this just scratches the surface. There's so much more detail in, in D'Amelio's book and other sources as well. So please do go check those out if, if you're interested in learning more. But never forget this guy because he's been forgotten by too many people. And it's uh, 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 one of the biggest shames in terms of forgotten historical figures, in my opinion. And so uh, with that, that, that's kind of where I want to end it, except for one final quote that I have. And it's a quote from Rustin himself. So the quote that we have here, he says, I have learned a very significant message from the Jewish prophets. They taught that God does not require us to achieve any of the good tasks that humanity must pursue. Instead, what the gods require of us is that we not stop trying. And like that, that is one of my favorite quotes in existence. And is like the thing that drives any form of social justice work that I do, whether it's through history or otherwise, like that is, that is, that's the thing to, to always keep in mind. And that's, that's what really propelled him as a person. It like through all the stories that I've told you guys, like as, as a person, who he is is someone who never stops trying no matter how many times the door is closed in his face no matter how many times he gets arrested no matter how many times people tell him that he can't because he's gay he he just keeps going for it you know and he and he keeps pursuing it because that's what matters it's not about getting it done i mean getting it done is nice but it's that you just can't stop trying because oftentimes you won't get it done because people are assholes and they'll tell you no and that's not good enough and you just got to keep doing it so if there's any other reason why you would need to love Bayard Rustin, I think this is it. I think if, if you're, you know, aspiring to do make any sort of social change and you're listening to this podcast, just keep that in mind uh, uh, in the state of our world, that, that as long as you never stop trying, you're doing something right. And I think that's a really great way to end it. So yeah, unless there are questions, which I, I, I believe I've rambled on long enough that there shouldn't be. So Katie, if you'd like to take us home with this episode, that's, that's all I got for you. So All right. Thank you so much for this. This has been great. I'm sure the listeners have also really enjoyed it, but I know Robin and I oh, yeah. have. Even though we weren't we weren't there, but we were nodding along. We were, we were there. We were <laughs> learning. Engaged. Excellent. Learning. Learning. Silently. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Rate and review the podcast as always. And we'll see you on the flippity flop. Woo! Bye. <laughs>
Haudenosaunee, Lenapawak, and Attawandaran peoples on lands connected with the London Township and Somber Treaties of 1796 and the Dish with One Spoon Covenant Wampum. This land continues to be home to First Nations peoples, Métis people, and Inuit people whom we recognize as the contemporary stewards of the land and waters we are on today. Digital Dust is hosted and produced by Elizabeth Edwards, Katie Gaskin, Patrick Kingen, and Robin Marshall. Sound design by Elizabeth Edwards. Audio transcription by Katie Gaskin. Our theme music is by Mattias Miller.